Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and as you're turning there, let me apologize in advance. I do have to run out right at the end of the service, so I won't be able to stick around for fellowship, but you'll have Pastor Doug here and Brother Bob Carson and others can certainly fill in the gap for me, but I do have to run out right after, so I apologize for that in advance. Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, this text, brethren, has been such a pleasure for me to study personally, and there's so much rich application in this text. Really just want to encourage you to give heed to what's said here this morning. There's a lot of great application here from this particular text. Matthew 11, verse 1 through 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding His twelve disciples that He departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ... He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in your word we have everything that we need to provide for us spiritually so that we can prosper and remain faithful to you. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of John the Baptist and even here in this text what we can learn from this dear brother and how we can apply these truths to us. And we pray that you would give us listening ears, listening hearts. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins, Lord, and most of all, grant us your Holy Spirit so that we would hear from you. So, Father, please work in our midst. Work in those who do not know you as well. We ask that this would be the day of salvation in this room for any who do not know you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Having recorded Jesus' preparatory instructions to his apostles, Matthew then brings us to an important event that transpires while Jesus himself is traveling about, continuing to preach the kingdom of God. The assumption of verse 1 is that immediately after instructing the apostles, Jesus sends them out as He Himself travels to their home cities throughout Galilee to continue on with His own preaching as well. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 12, and in Luke, chapter 9, verse 6, it specifically says there that they were sent out. Immediately they went out after He had given those instructions. And en route... Jesus then is approached at some point by two of John the Baptist's disciples who have been sent to Jesus to ask Him a very important question on behalf of John the Baptist. Jesus' response to this question, as well as His follow-up words, will be the topic of our consideration for the next few sermons dealing with Matthew chapter 11. And throughout the course of our study, we will find very relevant And also, I believe, encouraging applications which ought to be helpful and useful to us taken from this text. And so, beginning again with verses 1 through 3, we're told, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding His twelve disciples that He departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, brethren, before we consider the response which our Lord sends back to John through his disciples, 
let us take a closer look at the question that is given here so as to better help us understand our Lord's response. We're told that John had heard about Jesus' ministerial activities. That is to say that apparently he was in uh, being in prison. He had received reports from some of his disciples, and they would tell him what was going on, especially with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what provoked him to send then two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. Now there are two immediate factors that we have to note as we consider John's question. First, we're told that John was in prison, which is why he sent these disciples to Jesus, certainly rather than going to Jesus himself. We know that John was thrown into prison by King Herod because John had publicly called Herod out for taking Herodias, Herod's Herod's brother's wife. Herod had taken his wife for himself from his brother, and so John had called him out for that and challenged him to repent. And so Herod had put him in prison. In fact, Matthew is going to explain this event later on in chapter 14. We'll see that when he describes the death of John the Baptist. He goes back and gives the history of how John had wound up in prison. But here he is in prison. And so while in prison, after having faithfully prepared the way for the Lord by calling people to repentance and by providing a baptism of repentance, John had time to ponder the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ going forward. As he's getting feedback from his disciples, as he's getting reports, he's pondering as he's there what's going on in the ministry of Christ. To this end, as he's lingering on in prison, apparently his disciples would continue to provide reports for him, keeping him abreast of the doings of Christ. Secondly, secondly, it is obvious that John had certain expectations of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those expectations were not lining up with the reports that he was receiving. In other words, John had anticipated that Jesus would be accomplishing certain things. But much to the dismay of John, those things were not being accomplished. Simply going from town to town, preaching about a spiritual kingdom while exhibiting signs and wonders was not what John had expected, especially for any lengthy period of time, and that while John was rotting away in prison, as it were. So troubled by this was John that he'd even begun to question whether Jesus was actually the Christ. Imagine that, brethren. John the Baptist himself had doubts. Now, we'll discuss this further shortly, but I want you to take note of that for a moment. If anyone knew that Jesus was the Christ, it was John. He had seen the sign at Jesus' baptism. He got the confirmation and further compelled his disciples to follow Jesus, confessing that he must decrease so that Jesus would increase. He had made that glorious declaration when he beheld Jesus that we often quote today. It was John who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the friend of the bridegroom who rejoiced greatly and celebrated the coming of the bridegroom when some of his own disciples said, Hey John, this man is is taking a lot of your disciples over. John was, was thrilled about that. He rejoiced. And yet here, John asks... Are you the coming one? Or do we look for someone else? Or do we look for another? 
Maybe I was wrong. If not, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? You see, John had certain expectations that weren't being met. And so strong were these expectations that they blinded him, at least for a time, from the truth that he had professed and known so well. He couldn't remember in some way, or he couldn't recall accurately what he had seen. He was blinded by his circumstances. Now before we get to the Lord's answer, we need to answer one important question that is begged here, don't we? What was John expecting? What was he expecting? What ought the ministry of the Christ to have looked like according to John? Well, beyond the shadow of any doubt, John thought, as the Jews generally thought, as everyone thought in that time, that the Christ would quickly set up his kingdom on earth when he came. Once he came, he would set up that kingdom pretty soon after that. John spoke fervently, if you recall, his ministry of the coming judgment. And he kept calling everyone to repent. And he went all throughout the land calling people to repent. But he probably didn't understand that the kingdom of God was to begin in the heart until after the Christ had absorbed and conquered the curse of sin by his own death. Furthermore, he didn't understand that there would be a lengthy time period where sinners would be called into Christ's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel unto the building of Christ's church, the very thing that the Lord was preparing His apostles to continue to do. And even they didn't get it. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, they'd said again, is your kingdom, are you ready now? Are you going to finish that work yet? They still didn't understand that He had to do these things before the Christ would ultimately return in judgment. And so John was expecting the Christ to conquer and defeat the Romans and to bring judgment upon the wicked, leading him to take his throne on the seat of David in Israel during the lifetime of John. And this time was then wasting away with John sitting in a cell. His expectations to this end were dwindling away, bringing him to the point that he was even questioning if Jesus was actually the Christ. Rather than question his own understanding of the circumstances, he considered the possibility that just maybe the Christ still had not yet come. And to this end, he sends two of his disciples to question Jesus in this regard. Now, brethren, let's be honest for a moment. Being locked in a cell for a lengthy period of time can easily lead one to wrestle with those kinds of questions, especially if your understanding of the work of Christ is incomplete. He didn't have a full understanding of the work of Christ. In other words, we can be sympathetic to some sense to John. When you're going through trials, we can relate to some small extent. None of us are in prison, but sometimes it gets dark in those trials. And we begin to question things and say, well, what if I'm wrong about this? Or what about this? It happens in the Christian life. John was, after all, human. And he bore the same sin nature that rests within the heart of all mankind. And so the Lord Jesus Christ who was a skilled spiritual surgeon, then responds in a way that would point John back to the Word of God so that he could readjust his expectations in accordance with God's revealed will. Let us then consider our Lord's response. Look at verses 4-6. through six. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, 
The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so how then does the Lord respond to John? He removes the cloud of confusion brought about by John's present trial in prison and brings his mind back to the place where John can think biblically. He corrects John's understanding of the ministry of the Christ by pointing to what the Scriptures teach about the Christ. And he does this, brethren, in a profound way which would have compelled John to think back, to go back and think to that which he was forgetting, to what he had witnessed at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, John would have known those Old Testament messianic texts which our Lord was referring to here. Now for us, it's not as obvious, but the Jews, even to this day, they had certain texts that they know are messianic in nature. They're certain of it, and what our Lord refers to here in this text, they would have known these are messianic texts. In fact, one of these texts is the one that Jesus spoke in the synagogue, if you recall, and he said, this is being fulfilled in your presence, and they almost threw him off the cliff because they knew what he was saying, that he was the Messiah when he said that. And it was one of these very texts. So they knew that these were messianic texts. He stated these words, The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And the two disciples of John would have just witnessed Jesus doing these very things, which would have affirmed that the Lord was indeed fulfilling what the Scriptures taught about the Christ. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 18, we're not going to go there. In that context, Luke has a more historically in place where this is, where this is written in Luke's gospel. It's more historically in order. Matthew takes things a little out of order here. But in Luke's context, you see things in order, and there are all kinds of miracles surrounding when the Lord Jesus Christ had said this, and John's disciples would have seen those things. And so that's why Jesus says to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and you see, after he quotes or implies that text, those texts from the Old Testament. Now, which Old Testament text did the Lord Jesus Christ have in mind when he stated these things? Well, we read them earlier in our first scripture reading. And again, these would have been messianic texts to the Jews. Clearly, they knew these were messianic texts. Well, let's read them again. Go with me again to Isaiah We'll go first to chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. And we'll only read the first six verses there before we read the whole chapter. It's not that it's a long chapter, but I wanted you to get a little bit of the context there. But we're just going to read the first six verses. This is one of the texts that Jesus has in mind when he says what he says to John's disciples. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 6. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And here verse 5 is the verse that Jesus is referring to. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall birth forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And so here Isaiah prophesies 
about the restoration and future glory of Israel following their captivity, but he also speaks of miraculous events that would follow that captivity, which could only find their literal fulfillment during the time of the Messiah. And as I said, the people knew that. They knew that the literal fulfillment of that text would only come during the time of the Messiah. And it's precisely during the present ministry of Christ, which John's disciples beheld, that we find the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf being unstopped, the lame leaping, and the tongue of the dumb, uh, dumb, the dumb singing. The Jews would have known this to be a messianic text, and so Jesus refers to it as a reference and proof for authenticating his own ministry to John. But then secondly, Jesus references another important messianic text in the same statement, and it's found in Isaiah 61, and this is the one that Jesus preached uh, or, or read in the synagogue and said he'd fulfilled. And this actually speaks of the preaching ministry of the, of the Christ in Isaiah 61. And again, the Jews very well would have known that this was a messianic text. Isaiah 61, here it is. Listen to the word of the Lord, chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. Good tidings is the gospel. That's the word for gospel. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so here we find Isaiah speaking of the anointed one, again, messianic text, the Messiah, the Christ, as one who would preach good tidings, that is the gospel, to the poor, and one who would comfort the brokenhearted and console those who mourn. And that's why Jesus adds in the statement that he refers to, or that he, when he responds to John the Baptist through the disciples, he says, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's referring to this text as well. He is combining what would have been known as two very clear messianic texts to affirm that he was doing exactly what was in keeping with his messianic calling. The very summation of the Lord's public ministry was preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the sick, and comforting those who were without hope. Now, brethren, the significance of Isaiah 61 would especially have struck John, enabling to see what he had presently lost sight of because of his extenuating circumstances. And you can't help but believe that this was very intentional on the part of the Lord. Go back to Matthew again and... Well, stay with Isaiah for one second. Look at verse 1 again of Isaiah chapter 61. Look at verse 1 again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Now, how would this truth have resonated with John the Baptist? Remember, John was there when the Spirit of the Lord had come upon and anointed Jesus. 
at the baptism of Jesus, which John performed, John had seen that sign. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, which was the very sign that John was looking for to identify who the Christ was. That was the sign God had given him. Whoever it is who you see the Spirit descend upon like a dove, he's the Christ. And so that was the sign he was given. And so John had witnessed the anointing that's spoken about here in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus is here saying to John, as it were, John, you were there. You saw the sign. Recall what you saw and don't allow your present circumstances, as difficult as they are, to block that reality. Let what you saw then, which was undeniable, remove any present doubts that you're presently wrestling with. And notice as well, John, what the Scriptures teach in that same prophecy. That anointing that you saw me receive was unto a ministry of preaching the gospel to the poor and healing the brokenhearted. See the rest of that statement, John. I'm doing exactly what the Scriptures define as those accompanying signs, signs that would affirm the ministry of the Christ. Your expectations are off, and they've gotten way ahead of my ministry. Come back to Scripture and find comfort there. Well, finally, then, back in Matthew chapter 11, the Lord ends this, what he says to John's disciples. He's going to make some more comments about John to those who are there, but with John's disciples who are, who are going to leave with that message, he ends with these words. Finally, then, he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, this is not Jesus being harsh or inconsiderate of John. In fact, he is going to give John the greatest commendation right after this, isn't he? He's going to make a, a real high commendation of John right after he makes a statement that he was the greatest of all the prophets. This is Jesus now exhorting John to keep the faith. In spite of his present circumstances, in essence, the Lord is nudging John forward in such a way as to restore his confidence so that his doubting does not lead into unbelief. It is a blessed statement. Blessed is he who is not offended. And it's similar to our Lord's gentle rebuke. Remember of Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, you had a blessed statement there following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I touch the wounds uh, in his body. Then I will believe unless I place my fingers in the wounds. And then finally, when, John, when Thomas comes to Jesus, Jesus says, okay, put your hands in the wounds. And Thomas does that. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. Thomas believed when he saw uh, the proof. But what was Jesus' response to Thomas? Blessed are those who believe and don't see. See, it's a similar kind of idea. Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Blessed are those who believe and don't see. And so there is a blessing that falls upon those who persevere and keep the faith what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus sends a gentle caution to John, stating that those who remain consistent in their trust in Jesus without being offended at him during times of trial, which we're very prone to do, are blessed. You see, it's easy to trust in Jesus when things are going in a direction that is most comfortable and agreeable to us, isn't it? But it's hard to remain faithful through the dark times of trial, when you can hardly see one foot in front of you, 
And everything seems confusing and moving in a direction that you were not expecting. When the rug gets pulled out from underneath your feet, the real battle begins, doesn't it? But as we continue to trust in the Lord, leaning not on our own understanding, we can be certain that although we don't feel like it, we are indeed blessed. Before we close then, I want to cross this bridge into some important applications for us, brethren. I cut the text off there, and next time we'll go further into what our Lord says to those who are around them. But I want to stop here, because I think there's some very important applications that we need to take for us, especially going forward in the days ahead. First, by way of application, brethren, to get an appreciation of this application, I want you to consider with me a very brief summary a survey summary of the life of John the Baptist. I want you to think about this man's life for a few moments. John was chosen to prepare the way for the Christ before he was born. In fact, he's prophesied about to this end in the Old Testament. We'll come to that. We're told about John in the Old Testament. He had the Holy Spirit even when he was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, such that he leapt in her womb when Mary had visited Elizabeth in celebration of Mary's conception with the Christ. He spent the good part of his life in the outskirts of society, out in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair clothing and eating locusts and wild honey. And then finally, when he was 30 years old, he began his public ministry, his public prophetic ministry, calling people to repent and to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Christ. And just as he had gained a large following, just as this man is starting to get some traction, he's getting a following. This guy was out in the wilderness his whole life. He finally gets people following him. Once the Christ is revealed to him by the sign of the baptism, he begins to encourage all of his followers to start following the Christ, leading John to decrease so that Christ would increase. Then, following this, he was arrested and put in a cell for confronting King Herod with the sin of taking his brother's wife. And ultimately, never being freed from prison, his head was cut off and taken to Herodias in keeping with her daughter's request of King Herod, who having been so enamored by our dancing, vowed to give her whatever she wanted. That's a general summary of the life of John the Baptist. Now why do I point this out, brethren? Because there is a tremendous application that we can benefit from here, taken from John's wrestling with doubts about Jesus' messianic office from our text. First, when you consider John's biography as a whole, from a secular standpoint, it was very uneventful and seemingly wasteful. From a secular standpoint, from a worldly standpoint, John wasted his life. Wasted his younger years. Who spends their teenage and 20s living out in the wilderness by himself? Eating locusts and wild honey. When everybody else is partying and enjoying the, the, the young, the youthfulness of age. And in fact, brethren, this was the case with most of the Old Testament prophets, for that matter. The life of a prophet was no picnic I hope there's no one in here that says, I wish I was an Old Testament prophet. I really hope so. Because you would not have wanted me. I mean, it's a blessing to serve the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But these men had it tough. They often suffered much. They were secluded. 
They were alone. They didn't get to enjoy the daily comforts of life, and they committed most of their life to their ministerial work. And it's not like they continually heard from God. What a misunderstanding of the prophetic office. People assume, what a wonderful thing. They were constantly on the phone with God, as it were. Not the case. Prophecies and visions were not constant. And in fact, they were often laden with lengthy gaps, leaving them longing to hear from God again. The prophet didn't just have this access in such a way that he could, whenever he wants, hear from God. Now, there were times he sought the Lord with fasting when there were major decisions being made and the Lord answered, but it wasn't always immediate, and even then, that was certain occasions. They had no control over God's terms and times of communication. John the Baptist is a good example of that. This time that he's, that he's in prison, why hasn't God directly spoken to him about these very things that he's questioning Jesus about? Why isn't he comforted in this way? Why is he doubting? He's not receiving this constant communication that we might assume a prophet would receive. And John, he only lived into his early 30s, spending his final months in a prison cell, not like the prison cells today, which are somewhat like paradise as compared to what they lived in then, struggling with marred expectations leading up and into the day of his beheading. He never got out of that prison cell in one piece, literally. And yet, yet, he was a great man of God. Jesus calls him the greatest of all prophets, a label which we're going to consider, Lord willing, next time, or or one of the next few times from our text. See here then, brethren, that one cannot judge God's favor upon them on the basis of ease of life or material comforts. If that were the case, all of the prophets, in fact, Jesus himself, would have been most miserable. But what kept these men faithful, listen closely to me here, what kept these men faithful was the constant reminder that they were living unto and investing in another life. This life was a bus stop, as it were, only serving to bring them to glory. The Apostle Paul himself, you recall in the, gospel, in the book of Acts, he knew that as he was heading back to Jerusalem, he knew that he was heading back to a place where people wanted to murder him. He knew that he was heading back to a place where he was going to suffer persecution. The Holy Spirit of God solemnly testified to Paul that wherever he goes, guess what, Paul? You have persecutions, change and trials awaiting you there. And he knew that. But Paul said that he was only able to do that. He was only able to go back to Jerusalem without any fear, without being afraid, because he did not consider this life as dear to himself. He wasn't holding on to this life. And he set his mind rather to doing what? Where was his mind focused? On solemnly testing to the gospel of God's grace in Christ. See, he thought big picture, didn't he? You couldn't serve a ministry in the way that Apostle Paul did if you weren't thinking big ministry. You'd be constantly looking around, ducking, dodging, hiding. Now, brethren, here's the first application that I'm driving at here. We do not know what a day will bring. And our lives may take all kinds of unexpected twists at any moment. And we have, may have, expectations. We may have all kinds of plans 
And we may be set in our ways and on our paths, but we must be ready, and the plans aren't wrong. We must be ready at any time, if necessary, to embrace God's will should he pull out the rug from underneath us, completely altering the direction of our lives. We have to be ready for that. We ought to plan. We're not to just sit back. We're to do things. We're to be active. But we have to be ready for whatever God determines to do in our lives. We have to be willing to accept God's will wherever it takes us, entrusting our lives to His sovereign care, His perfect and pure wisdom. And we must strive, brethren, here's the key. We must strive to be faithful no matter what. No matter what the course, we must strive to be faithful. And so I challenge you to guard your expectations. Guard your expectations. Guard them carefully and hold on to your plans with loose hands. Make plans, but hold on to them with a loose grip. If you don't, you will be prone toward complaining against God and being offended by Christ or even questioning Him because you have taken it upon yourself to write your future in a direction that He has never guaranteed you. So we go outside of Scripture, and making plans does that. Right? We can't guarantee everything that we plan and say, here it is in the Scripture. We have to make decisions and plans. But we can't cling to those plans in the way that we do Scripture. Your future may involve a painful and crippling disease. It may involve the loss of significant assets and personal property that you spent so much time seeking to build up. It may involve losing a job that you have worked your way up to the top after so many years and losing your retirement. It may involve physical blindness, cancer, or some other unexpected affliction. And yes, it may even include death much sooner than you anticipated. How many people thought that the Apostle James was going to be killed so early on in the life of the apostolic ministry following Christ's ascension to heaven? And from a providential standpoint, everything may seem to be lining up just in the right direction. I've been there. Everything providentially seems to be going in the exact direction. It's all speaking this way, this direction. Everything may seem to be lining up, and every prayer may be answered right according to the direction that you're heading. You've backed it up with prayer, and you say, this has got to be the direction. The Lord is opening up the doors. He's closing other doors. Here it is. The writing may seem to be deeply etched on the wall for your life, and you're faithfully serving God the whole way through. But then God might just pull you into a hard, a very hard left turn. And brethren, you have to be ready for that. You have to be ready to give him praise right then and there as your entire plan, as all that you've invested in, in accordance with your understanding of the will of God, seems to crumble right before your eyes. And it may never come back together. And it's right there that you have to come back, brethren, to this text and remind yourself that John the Baptist never got out of that cell and was beheaded. That's his end. And yet he was pleasing to God. You hear these stories. It wasn't the first time, even recently again, of these, these missionary, these, these seminary graduates, finished seminary, got their education, 
ready to start ministry. What more effective tools could be ready for the kingdom of God that God could use in great ways to plant churches and preach the gospel and they're in a car together and they die in a car accident before they step foot in a church that they're going to pastor over? Why? Lord, why? See, we have to be ready to stop at those moments and say, praise the Lord, he knows what's best. See, this type of reality is very common for the people of God, brethren. And this then takes us to a second important application. But that's how God is glorified, isn't he? By being faithful even during those times. Secondly, secondly, by way of application then, the only guarantees that we have are those guarantees which are given to us in the Scriptures. That's the only guarantees that we have. We cannot hang our hats on anything else, not even in providence, which we so often misinterpret. I can tell you my own life, there have been many times when everything, and it is providence, when God is providentially bringing everything out this way, you're praying about it, everything is going exactly that way, and then God just takes you in another direction, if for no other reason, to cause you to trust in His Word and not in providence. Do we plan? Yes. Do we pursue the unfolding of those plans? Yes. But we must limit the certainty of our expectations solely to what is absolutely promised in God's Word. That's what we need to do. This is where we need to be, especially during times of suffering and trials. And if we do this, we will be reluctant to say to the Lord, are you the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? You see, John's expectations went beyond the Scriptures. And brethren, if a great and mighty prophet of God can do that, rest assured, we can. In fact, we are very prone to doing that. God's Word gives us much to stand on. We have such wonderful, glorious, great, and precious, unchangeable promises given to us in this book. And we have the full assurance of where all this is heading in life. But, but... The road in front of us which brings us there is not always certain, is it? How are we going to get there? And we can never assume an equal measure of certainty on how the road will look like to glory as we do with the reality of the coming glory itself because God has never guaranteed us the, the exact picture of the map to getting to glory. I would love to see all of my children grow up and get married. And I think about that sometimes, and I should. I would love to see this church flourish and prosper beyond my greatest expectations. But I may walk down from this pulpit today and fall over and die from a stroke. And if so, God be praised. I had plans, but His are better, and His word is still as true, and He is still as faithful as He always has been. My life is but an ink spot on the pages of eternity. And I know, even as the apostles had come to know, that whatever cross there is to bear, brethren, there will always be a resurrection that follows. God is faithful. His word, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path, is sure. And that alone is where we must ultimately rest our souls to the full. We must keep our expectations firmly there. And we need to remember that present trials 
have a habit of leading us to forget the past. But the good news is that God's word tends to reopen up our minds and open up our understanding to remember what we so easily forget during times of trial. Thirdly, by way of application, I cannot leave this text, brethren, without highlighting a profound encouragement that is revealed herein as well. It's never a good thing to doubt the Lord, is it? It's not. And yet even John the Baptist struggled with doubt, brethren. Even John the Baptist struggled with doubt. This is not an encouragement for us to doubt. But if you have doubted, if you have struggled in this way, know that it does not mean that you're a heretic. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. Think about that for a moment. After all that John had seen and heard, he, for a short time at least, actually wrestled with whether or not Jesus was really the Christ. And so I say this, brethren, to simply note that at times, even the best of Christians can struggle with doubt, particularly when going through very dark trials. It happens. Is it justifiable? No. But it can and does happen. And that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian or that God is done with you because you've gone through periods where you struggle with doubt. The key is this. The key is this. Never let such doubts lead you to the place of unbelief. There's a difference there. Never let doubts cause you to walk away. That is where the major difference lies between the sincere believer and the false believer. When doubt becomes unbelief, when doubt leads you to deny Christ and to walk away, then I would be greatly concerned about your salvation. But if you struggle with doubt... The most important thing to do is to keep pressing on, to be faithful no matter what, pleading with God to renew and strengthen your faith. You're struggling with these doubts, you don't want them, but they're there. Plead with God to strengthen your faith and keep being faithful regardless of the doubts that are coming in, and He will meet you in due time. Stay the course no matter what. Say with the apostles in the midst of great confusion and an apostate multitude, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. Finally, for those of you who are not saved this morning, if you are not a true Christian here, I plead with you, I plead with you to come to Christ before it is too late. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Cry out to Him. There might be a million reasons you can give. You say, I'm not sure. I don't understand this. I don't see this. I don't feel this. I'm not hearing this. Put all that aside and just come to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I violated your law. I know I'm worthy of your judgment. And I know that you, Lord Jesus, are the only way to be reconciled to the Father. You're the only way. That's all I know. Lord, I give my heart and I pray before you and I say, please save me. And then you begin to follow him. Take steps of faith. God will never turn that person away. Never. It won't happen. Just call out to him. Speak to him. He sees. He knows. He created all of this. He knows every thought in your mind. You don't even have to vocalize it. You could say it in your own mind. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Jesus, you are the only way to heaven. I don't know much. I don't know all these doctrines of Calvinism and all this stuff. I'm confused about all this. But I know one thing. I need a Savior, and Christ is it. Save me. And then follow him. And God will hear you. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, that you even have these recordings of events in Scripture that if it were us, we wouldn't want other people to know. How many of us would want to know, Lord, that we've doubted you at times, questioned you at times because of our expectations, because of our trials? And yet here, even the great John the Baptist, a man who had the Holy Spirit from birth, a man who we look up to in so many ways, himself struggled with doubt. We thank you, Lord, for showing us that, not because we look down upon him, but because we know that we have hope in that same grace that you've shown to him. And if such a great man can struggle in that way, we know that we can as well. But Lord, give us grace not to doubt, not to be offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to accept wherever you lead us on this path. Give us grace to cling solely and completely to your word. And as we go above and beyond your word, you know our hearts, Lord. We have expectations. It's natural for us to have expectations, but at times we let those expectations become so strong and we equate it with your word. Lord, help us to see the difference. Help us to be ready to hold on to this life with a loose hand and to be ready to accept whatever it is that you'll bring in our path going forward. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to save any who don't know you today. We ask that you would be pleased to work in their hearts. Lead them to call upon the name of the Lord that they might be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.